Shrinkwrap Radio number 881, Scott Bond, Ph.D., on the fascination with serial killers. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrinkwrap Radio is playing on again. Yeah. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. Shrinkwrap Radio. Shrinkwrap Radio. Shrinkwrap Radio. Shrinkwrap Radio. It's Shrinkwrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Dr. Scott Bonn. Dr. Scott Bonn is a criminologist, podcast host, TV commentator, public speaker, and author of the best-selling popular culture book, Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murderers. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Scott Bond, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, well, I'm really glad to have you. Uh, We're going to be discussing your work as a criminologist, and your book, Why We Love Serial Killers. So first of all, I have to congratulate you on writing such a readable, comprehensive, and authoritative book. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, um, you know, it's, it's a book that I really envisioned being for people who want to get uh, an overview of serial killers what they do, but this is not a practitioner's book. This is this is not a practicum. This is not for um, you know uh, FBI agents or something like that. Right. It's for the general public, but it's to get really inside of the minds of these individuals to, to try to understand their their drives, their fantasies, their needs. But then, what I also like to do, and why it's called "Why We Love Serial Killers," that's the title of the book, yeah, in which I realize is an ironic title is I sort of turn the mirror around so that we look at ourselves psychologically and say, what is the incredible fascination with these individuals? So that's a big part of what the book is about as well. That's maybe a good place for us to start here is uh, how do you answer that question for yourself? (laughs) Well, through extensive research and also uh, participating in a, uh, a live show that I do, a theatrical show uh, that I do around uh, the United States, I have learned an awful lot about the true crime audience. And uh, your audience may be interested to know that the true crime audience, which consists of millions and millions of people, is predominantly female in composition, 80 to 90 percent women are drawn to this. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't men who are interested in serial killers and true crime, but it really is a female thing. And uh, I have investigated this. I've talked to a lot of female true crime fans. And what they tell me, and or my interpretation is that it has to do with empathy. 
I think we as human beings empathize with all things, the good and the bad, uh, which is why I think that many of us will actually empathize with and identify with the villain or the monster in, in classic monster movies. You know, we'll identify with the plight of King Kong or Dracula or the Frankenstein monster yeah, and yeah. understand, you know, from their perspective. And I think the same is true with serial killers. The, the uh, women tell me that they, of course, identify with the victims in these stories because they are predominantly women. So there, but for the grace of God, go I, so to speak. But then there's also the need to try to understand the mind of the predator so as to arm themselves and not become victim of these individuals or perhaps date or get involved or marry the next Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy. Um, so they tell me they're looking for tools. They're looking for practical tools, uh, which is why they are drawn to these you know, true crime uh, uh, shows, podcasts, et cetera, and why they frankly come to my show as well. Um, but there's, you know, you dig in deeper and you, and you dig into the psychology of this. And I think your audience um, may find this perspective interesting. This one of my conclusions is that when something is so horrific, so horrible, so incomprehensible as why Jeffrey Dahmer would apprehend, kill, mutilate and ultimately eat his victims, it's beyond the kin. It's beyond our understanding. And therefore, truly terrifying. And I think almost at a subconscious level, we think that if I can just somehow wrap my mind around it, then maybe it's not so terrifying after all. Uh, I can sleep better at night. Um, but, you know, I talked about turning the mirror, you know, to ourselves. And I think the serial killer also um, uh, uh, allows us to do that or begs us to do that. You know, we might say, you know, I hate my boss. I hate that SOB. I could kill him, you know, but we don't really do it. You know, we think about it, but we don't really do it. These individuals do. So it begs us to sort of look into the mirror, the darkest part of our nature and our uh, predispositions and say, what might I do under the most stressful circumstances? Could I ever be compelled to do something like this? It stretches well, you know, that, our... That, yeah, that begs the question of whether or not we're all potentially killers. What do you think about that? Maybe not serial killers, but uh, <clears throat> if the circumstances of our lives were different, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, how influential you think the background is, the person's socioeconomic background, etc. is, but um, so, yes. so well, do you I think, think if, if we grew up otherwise than we did, might might we all have that capability within us? Well, there there is the um, you know the survival instinct, and uh, so I think with within each and every one of us there is that need for survival, and driven to extremes, what might we do uh, if we were compelled to kill? You know, if a gun was put to our head, or if a gun was put to our, a loved one's head, what might we do? Um, some of you, I'm sure you're familiar and, 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 and many of your audience are familiar with the Stanley Milgram experiments, you know, where, where people um, uh, were, were led to believe that they were shocking um, other people to the point that they might kill them in a, in a so-called learning experience. And two thirds of the people 
um, the, uh, were, were actually motivated by simply an authoritarian figure saying, you should do this, you need to do this, two thirds shocked other people to the point that they thought they might have, have uh, deeply hurt them or killed them. So yes, I think under those circumstances, um, but you, you, know, you bring up uh, the great nature versus nurture debate. And when it comes to serial killers, really both apply. And, um, and I'll explain what I mean. Most serial killers, the vast majority, are either psychopaths or sociopaths. And as you, uh, I'm sure you well know, that the American Psychological Association, or Psychiatric Association, excuse me, considers them to be antisocial personality disorders for which there is no cure which is to distinguish them from something like uh, schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, that is truly a clinical condition and can be, um, can be treated. So if you've got these individuals who are psychopaths and sociopaths, um, they simply don't have the normal range of empathetic feelings and, and connection to another living person, particularly the psychopaths. And I am of the camp that believe that, that psychopaths are born differently. Their brain simply is wired differently and responds differently to stimuli and has very low impulse control, you know, in the frontal lobe of the brain, which allows them to do these things with impunity, you know? So if you com combine low impulse control with the need to, to um, dominate others and uh, a lack of, of remorse, sadness, fear, um, et cetera, um, then you have almost like a, you know, a perfect cold-blooded killing machine. Sociopaths, differently. Here's where the environmental conditions come in. And a great example here is the serial female serial killer, Eileen Warnos, that some of your uh, audience may be familiar with. She, um, there was a movie called Monster. Uh, Charlene uh, Theron uh, starred in that. She did an incredible job. Here's an individual who I believe was born with a normal brain, so to speak, but she, through years and years of abuse and trauma and torture, became conditioned into becoming a retaliatory and predatory individual herself and ultimately began killing. She was a, a prostitute and she worked along the highway getting in clients' cars, and she ultimately started killing them because in her mind, she was striking back at her oppressor uh, who had harmed her. So there's a classic example of an individual who really got conditioned into it. And of course, not all psychopaths are serial killers, and not all serial killers are psychopaths. But what seems to happen for those who have this genetic predisposition in the brain Right around the age of puberty, something happens where the sexual impulse and drive gets twisted and, conf and confounded with harming people and, and torture and, and, and um, sadism, and they become sexually aroused by doing these things, which is why some of these individuals like Ted Bundy and, and uh, Dennis Rader, BTK and others harm animals. And Jeffrey Dahmer actually brought roadkill home and he would become sexually aroused by putting him, his hands in the cavity, the body cavities of, de of dead animals. So clearly there's a major red flag if you've got a child or you know an adolescent who does those sorts of things. And this follows a progression 
This becomes a fantasy loop in these individuals' minds, and they often combine it in adolescence and early adulthood with masturbation. So violence, uh, shocking uh, uh, sadism and, and, and images of violence and fantasies combined with masturbation becomes a compulsion with them. And they reach what I call a tipping point where they can no longer live in their own minds and they have to actually live it in reality and, and kill. Yeah, and yeah, then okay. that happens. The right. train, the train left the station at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're cover, covering a lot of ground here very quickly. And I appreciate that. I wanted to back up to something that I was wondering about because you and I, in a previous uh, brief phone conversation, uh, I was surprised to dis discover that you were not aware um, what a perfect host I would be to interview you, given that I uh, co-authored a book on uh, the Zodiac serial killer in 2001. But you didn't know that. How did, how, what drew you to this show? You, you approached me wanting to be interviewed. Um, how did it was, that happen? It was just kismet. I I um, I checked. I was listening to some, you know, to to your to your your show. Um, I did not know that, but I just said to myself, you know, this this just seems like a perfect fit to talk about what I what I do. And so I guess it was just uh, it was destiny or uh, uh, fate <laughs> that we were supposed to uh, connect. And I'm I'm so happy that we did. Yeah, I'm a, kind of a big believer in synchronicity, and so for me, me this this fits into a, a kind of a, synchronous, a synchronistic uh, pattern uh, that's that's happened. Um, but I, I don't want to get away too far from your book here. Um, so I'm just looking at some of the questions I planned to ask you, and uh, you've already gotten gotten into them. Um, Let's talk about the myths that surround uh, serial killers. I mean, there yes. are. Uh, and, oh, and I wanted to to pick up on the uh, your observation about women being and uh, dominating the the uh, the and something that I've noticed is I like to read not serial killer novels but but uh, murder mystery type novels. And mm -hmm. uh, so many of them now, there's a huge influx, influx of women authors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what I'm finding. And uh, um, so I think maybe those two things are related. But let's talk about... I think about, you're right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, let's talk about, about the, the, the myths that uh, you can dispel here that surround sure. serial killers. Yeah, that, you know, there's... I like to call the depiction of serial killers in in uh, the media, in news media, as well as the entertainment media, you know, fictionalized films and things like that. They, they uh, serial killers are almost given like a, a larger than life, uh, what I call celebrity monster status. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're sensationalized and dramatized. Um, there's probably no better example of that than, um, you know, than Jeffrey Dahmer, who has, you know, become it, it just iconic. I mean, they're Jeff, believe it or not, they're Jeffrey Dahmer cookbooks and recipe books, um, oh, okay. which, which I think is in pretty bad taste, but yeah. nevertheless, see how he's become part of, you know, part of the culture. And, um, 
you know, in, in terms of the mythology, um, the, 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 the idea, if, if you ask the average person, they're going to tell you that the average serial killer is a um, fairly young white male who's kind of awkward and weird and lives by himself out in the, the, the woods yeah. and, um, and, and is somewhat dysfunctional, you know, and, and the, and the, the, uh, of course the iconic, uh, uh, fictional character there is like the tooth fairy in the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the silence of the lambs films, um, also Buffalo Bill, uh, fall into those category. And there are serial killers like that, but that is by no means the uh, the norm. Um, I mean, you have serial killers like uh, uh, I believe Rex Hewerman, who was recently arrested for the Long Island serial killer uh, murders, and another one like Dennis Rader, who called himself Bind, Torture, Kill. These were family men. These were middle aged family men who raised beautiful families who had wonderful wives, who were in many ways the pillar of their community. Dennis Rader, BTK, was the uh, president of his Lutheran Church Association, uh, ironically. He was the Boy Scout leader in town, and yet he was a sadistic killer. Bind, torture, kill is what he did to his victims. And Rex Hewerman was an architect, a highly successful architect with his, with his own business and a family as well. So the, the, the myth that they're, they're these sort of strange loners, you know, uh, is just not true. And the fact that they're all white males is not true. There are female serial killers. We, we mentioned Eileen Warnos. There are serial killers of every race, of every um, uh, ethnic group, religious uh, following, sexual orientation. They're very varied. Uh, but the ones that we tend to know the most about, the ones that become almost iconic, are the ones that typically kill young white women. They're the ones that 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 make it in the in the headlines. Um, and there's a phenomenon that that, uh, that some of your uh, audience may be familiar with. Uh, it's called missing white woman syndrome. All, although white women make up less than 25% of all the people who go missing every year. They are virtually 100% of the, the stories when missing person stories hit the news. So it's simply when, a, when there's a, a female white victim, we as a society and the news media takes it very, very seriously. So the news and entertainment media help to perpetuate some of these um, uh, stereotypes that it's all, you know, these white males. And um, there, are, there, of course, are, are other um, uh, uh, myths as well. I can go into some more if you'd like. Uh, actually, uh, what you've said so far raises the question about profiling. Um, yes. The, the concept of profiling, and, and actually the book that I wrote, I was brought into the project to try to profile uh, the Zodiac. Um, and, you know, just, and I did it from a sort of as a, a depth psychologist kind of coming from that point of view, but what is the basis for, for thinking that we could profile given the, the insane variety that you just described? Right. It, it's, it seems like it would be a hopeless task to, to try to profile. 
It's a, um, it's a wonderful question. And I'm going to answer that by telling you um, uh, a story. I, I was very involved with the Long Island serial killer case. And um, back in 2010, when the first bodies were discovered on the south shore of Long Island, Gilgo Beach, and uh, they were four uh, petite sex workers who were discovered um, there on, on the beach, um, uh, Law enforcement knew they had a serial killer on their hands, and it became a big story. And at that time, in 2010, I was teaching at uh, Drew University, which is a uh, university just um, uh, east of um, New York City in, um, in New Jersey. And I had been working with the news media quite a bit, providing commentary on different stories. And they asked me to profile the Long Island serial killer, this unknown perpetrator, based upon what they knew from the crime scene. Now, the the FBI and a, and a specific individual, his name was Roy Hazelwood. He he was one of what I like to call the OG profilers from the 1970s, uh, along with John Douglas and Bob Ressler, who may be more familiar to your audience. But Roy Hazelwood was truly a, a, a visionary genius. And he came up with the theory, which has proven to be quite accurate, that you can profile the psychology, um, uh, even the behaviors and demographics of a, of a serial killer by looking at all of the crime scene evidence, the way that they leave their victims, the, the nature of the crime scene, and, this, and these crime scenes tend to be repeated, the serial nature of it. There sometimes there are what are known as signatures where they repeat the same behavior and leave the same yeah. evidence scene after scene. And you, you can identify and predict what these individuals will be like in their next moves by going backwards, working retroactively and matching it to solved cases like the Green River Killer and Ted Bundy and BTK, et cetera. And this is exactly what I did. I, I was also trained in criminalistics and you know, crime scene analysis, but I utilized this approach. And what I came up with as a profile for the Long Island serial killer is that he would be very much of a BTK type of character. He would be a psychopathic, sexual narcissist, torturer, sexual sadist. He'd be a middle-aged white man. He would be married with adult children. He would be very meticulous and organized like his crime scenes. He would be persuasive in nature, the ability to convince these young sex workers to do what he wanted and go with him where, where, wherever he, he so fit. Um, he would be physically strong. And most importantly, he would live in the immediate vicinity of his sacred burial ground on um, Gilgo Beach, which is where I believe that he would return and uh, any time he needed to relive and fantasize about those kills. So now 12 years goes by. Uh, my, my profile was published in the New York Times back in 2011. It received uh, you know, quite a bit of news attention um, uh, at the time, but 12 years went by. And then last summer, uh, my phone began to ring off the hook in, in July. And it was news media from all over the country and all over the world saying Rex Hewerman had just been arrested and charged with these murders and that my profile was dead on. And so 
within wow. the next few weeks. Yeah, I, within the next few weeks, I was you yeah. named the the the, the, uh, the news outlet. I was on there, and as I got familiar with Rex Huerman, it was uncanny. I, even more than I could have ever anticipated how right on my profile was. Because not only was he the middle-aged white man, the family man, um, he was trained as an architect, trained in mathematics and engineering and design. Who is more meticulous and organized than an architect? Who is more persuasive than an architect who had to sell his own ideas and also then use those same skills to uh, manipulate and coerce these young sex workers. And you talk about power and control. He's a power and control dominating killer. Giant of a man, six foot six, almost 300 pounds. And he was killing petite sex workers, some of whom were not even five feet tall. And he, he was a hunter, a bear hunter. He gutted animals. And the ultimate is he lived a stone's throw, viewing distance to his burial ground. Wow. Yeah, wow. You really did nail it. Now, to put the two things together, that profiling was possible, and what you said about the wide variety, I would would think that we could conclude that profiling makes sense for individual cases where, and you're looking at the track record and so on, but you can't necessarily generalize to all serial killers. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But every serial killer has a different crime scene. You know, they leave different evidence. And um, and based upon that evidence, you can draw conclusions. I, I knew by the way this guy left his crime scenes that we were dealing with, with what's known as a power and control killer, highly organized and highly meticulous. Um, the absolute opposite, there, there's, there's, there's what's known as a disorganized crime scene. Um, and, and that is where, uh, they will normally leave the victim. There will be no attempt to try to hide the, the victim at all. They just blitz the, the individual and leave them where they are. The classic example of that is of course, Jack the Ripper, who just slashed women to shreds in London and left them in a pile of gore on the street. That type of individual is usually, usually an unsophisticated, low intellect, true madman from a clinical you know from a clinical standpoint it's a very different individual which is why if i was profiling back in those days i would have never thought it would have been a medical doctor because the individual who did this demonstrated no medical knowledge whatsoever he just hacked them to pieces um a butcher has more uh medical forensic knowledge um or uh, you know the human anatomy um so what I would say in conclusion, I mean, with, about profiling is what it really allows us to do is to eliminate people. It won't say that Rex Hewerman is the man um, in, in and of itself. You need evidence and you need DNA and things like that to identify him. But it narrows it down that he is a likely suspect and it will eliminate a lot of other people. Yeah, yeah. Um I'm aware that we haven't uh, really gone over your credentials, and uh, and it's clear that you have training in this area and in psychology. So just say a little bit about how you get to be who you are. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I have a I have a master's degree in criminal justice, so I take that. You know, I I, I uh, have the uh, 
you know, the sort of practicum experience, but more importantly, my PhD is in criminology. So I am more um, uh, theoretical and um, uh, looking at, at patterns and uh, getting inside the minds of, of these individuals. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not an FBI agent. I don't carry a gun, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and, um, and, I, and I was a college professor, tenured professor for about 15 years. Uh, I'm now an um, independent consultant and producer. I pr as I said, I produce my own uh, live show that I take around the country and educate people and, and hopefully you know, provide some entertainment value about these uh, things. But the first 20 years of my professional career was completely different. I was in the advertising, media, and communications world. I was actually a vice president at NBC Television Network during the Seinfeld years. And how these two things are linked is that I, I, got to, I began to see that the old journalistic adage really, really applies, which is if, if it bleeds, it leads. The more sensationalized it is, the more gory it is, the more people who tune in and thereby more advertising is sold based upon the size of the audience. And that's where I began to see that certain people like Charles Manson, like the son of Sam, um, BTK, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, become these larger than life ghouls almost in our, in, our, um, uh, in, in, in our popular culture. And we're drawn to them. So my background in media combined with my, my uh, training in criminology got me focusing on how these individuals um, have, have just almost become larger than life. And I have the impression that you also have uh, credentials in sociology yeah, well, criminology is a specialty within sociology. Okay. Um, so I look at things very sociologically, the, the patterns of society. Um, and that's why I'm so interested in the way society reacts to serial killers and, 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 um, and perceives serial killers, uh, because I have that sociological training. You know, if, if you talk to the average person and you say to them, uh, based upon your general knowledge, what portion of all homicides or what percent of all homicides are committed by serial killers? And I've heard 25%, I've heard 50%. Reality is less than 1%. But because of the, the um, stage, if you will, or the platform that we put these individuals on in movies, TV shows, podcasts, books, paraphernalia, um, you know, cookbooks, like I was telling you about, yeah. the, the perception is that they are much bigger, grandiose, and prolific than they really are. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think? Do you think that is partially a cause of serial killers? I mean, do you think that is that a driving force for some people to tip them over the edge and say, hey, I want to be famous. You know, I'm thinking of uh, the guy who killed John Lennon, for example. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, you know, of course, he's not a, not a serial killer. Um, but the, the, there are serial killers who are what I call students of the game, meaning that they follow each other. And in some cases, they're even jealous of one another. Um, I got to know David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, 
very well. I spent a day with him, an entire day with him in uh, maximum security prison one day, interviewing him and having lunch with him, and, um, and as well as BTK I, and, and some others, like I said, Long Island serial killer. And I found, for example, that BTK, Dennis Rader, who grew up in, in Wichita and was killing at the same time in Wichita that the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, was killing in New York City, was actually jealous of the media attention that Berkowitz got. He was in a bigger media market. He was in New York City. He was getting global <laughs> media attention, whereas BTK was not. And he was actually jealous of that. He told me that, um, in fact. Um, and so if, if he had been in New York or a Chicago or a Los Angeles, more people would probably be familiar with BTK. Um, although, I mean, he is a pretty infamous individual, but for his for his uh, uh, concerns, he didn't get enough media attention. You know, the incredible narcissist, yeah. um, you know, and, and and psychopath that he is. But does 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 seeing a serial killer or observing a serial killer um, cause one to become a serial killer? Um, in my experience, no. And I'll tell you why. First of all, you either have that predisposition, which I truly believe in the case of a psychopath, is a predisposition toward harming other people and um, the enjoyment of inflicting pain on someone else. You either have that or you don't have it. And even if you do have it, it has to be triggered in some way. Um, uh, like uh, with in the case of BTK, that where how he started was at the age of, of 10, and he um, was at his grandmother's farm and she killed a chicken for dinner. And when he saw the blood squirt out of that chicken's neck, he became sexually aroused. And that's what started his um, uh, evolution, if you will, and yeah. his progression. So those things have to happen. There has to be a trigger. Something has to happen in order for it. But once they're there, once they're already on that progression, on that journey, seeing other serial killers could potentially, yeah, fuel the flames or fan the flames. Yeah. You know, you've mentioned this show. And uh, so I want to give you a chance to talk about this media event that you put on. And I think you've got, is this the same thing that you have coming up in Chicago? Yes. Well, last year, and thank you so much for, for bringing it up. Yeah. Last year, I, um, I went around the country, hit about 15 major cities, um, and I introduced this, this show, um, The Psychology of Serial Killers. And what I'm doing now is I'm adapting it. I, I, I've learned what uh, the audience really, really responds to. And so I have a, um, a new show and it's called Why We Love Serial Killers, uh, which is the same title as my book. And we premiere in Chicago on April 11th at a venue there, beautiful venue. It's called the City Winery, which is right downtown on West Randolph Street in Chicago. And it's at 7.30 p.m. So for anyone who might be in Chicago or visiting Chicago at that time, April 11th, please come out to the City Winery. And um, I promise you an evening filled with thrills and chills about these individuals. And my show is really set up in two acts. Act number one, I try to describe and explain everything that 
someone might want to know about serial killers and what, what drives them. But then I also take you inside the mind of several different serial killers who I know extremely well and have stories and inside information that no one else has on the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, Dennis Rader, BTK, and the Long Island serial killer. Um, and then in the second act of the show, we get into this, the psychology, our own psychology, and our fascination with the dark side and these individuals. But the thing that really seems to be what everyone loves is I spend about 30 minutes in a live Q&A session where people get to ask questions from the audience, anything that they'd like to know about this topic and serial killers. And, and believe it or not, David, I will get hundreds of questions submitted in that evening. I can't possibly get to them all, but it shows you how much people love this, this uh, aspect of the show. Um, so I'm really excited um, to introduce some new things um, as well as uh, uh, some of the, uh, the, the things that worked so well last year. And um, we're going to kick it off in Chicago, as I said, on April 11th. And um, we then uh, plan to roll it out um, over the summer. So more dates will be announced soon. Wow. Uh, what a creative, inventive thing for you to do. I mean, you know, I, I certainly have, I've had a taste of, of that hunger that you're talking about. One of the things that I learned from working on the Zodiac case was, and I don't know if this has happened to you, maybe it will happen, uh, where people would contact me to say, oh my God, I, you know, because the Zodiac had not been, uh, the, the, as far as I know, the case still has not been solved, although various people will claim that it has been. But I checked in with my co-author, who I really trust. He's written, uh, he's been in true crime for a long time. And uh, he said, no, it's, it's, he doesn't buy any of it. But at any rate, I would be contacted by people saying, oh, my God, my stepfather is the Zodiac. He's exactly what you've described. And what this and this happened over and over again to such an extent, my co-author co doesn't even really want to hear from anybody like that. He, he's heard it all. He's tired of it. But it really shows how much, how a scary number of individuals are out there as parents or uncles or whatever, as family members or family friends who have done really scary stuff and, you know, that would qualify them to somebody who knows them well to think, oh, my God, this is the, this is the guy. Have yes. you run into anything like that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I get all the time. Um, you know, these, these tips that, oh, I, I, um, you know, the, I, I know who the Zodiac is or the Boston Strangler, they didn't get the right guy. You know, I went to school with him, you know, all those things. And yeah. then of course you get the, the ones that say, I'm pretty sure that my brother-in-law is a psychopath and I think he's a serial killer. You know, can you look into it? You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, right. I'm, I'm sorry, that's not what I do. You know, I'm not <laughs> a private investigator. I'm not, I'm not law enforcement, but yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I do get those, um, you know, I do get those things. And you, you know, you, you touch upon a topic that, you know, that it's one thing 
And I love passionate fans, people who are into true crime. And, you know, and some of them, you know, it's, it, it, there are the, um, the web sleuths who have actually been instrumental and helpful in solving some cases. You know, you have the people who embed themselves into the investigation through social media and through uh, the, uh, the Internet and have actually been you know, helpful to law enforcement. But then you've got the people who take it to the extreme. You've got the groupies who fall in love with these individuals, who become obsessed, um, who are, you know, clearly not doing anything that's pro-social, you know, in nature. And yeah, these guys uh, get marriage proposals, right? You've pointed that out in your book. Well, in in fact, one of the most one of the most uh, infamous serial killers of all time, um, uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, married one of his groupies. He actually married one of his groupies, and 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 to take it, you know, if, while he was behind bars, you know, in fact, and on death row, and to take it a step further, there's another phenomenon out there that your audience may be fascinated by, and we could probably spend a whole another episode uh, show talking about, is the collection of what is known as murderabilia, memorabilia, but murderabilia. And that is the artifacts and the personal items and drawings and paintings of legendary killers. There's a huge market for that out there. Wow. Uh, there are websites dedicated to the, to the sale of, the, of this stuff. And believe it or not, Richard Ramirez's widow, because he died in, in, in uh, prison a few years ago um, of liver failure. He was a drug addict and an alcoholic. She actually authenticates his murderabilia. So if you buy a shirt on the Internet that Richard Ramirez once wore, once wore you get a letter that says, yes, my husband wore this shirt. You know, she authenticates this stuff and no doubt gets a piece of the action, you know, for selling it. And some of these items sell for thousands of dollars. Oh, my thousands. goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, Jeffrey Dahmer's eyeglasses, his last known pair of eyeglasses before he was beaten to death in prison, killed by a, a fellow inmate, has been on auction since last year, asking price $150,000. My goodness. <laughs> huh. This this uh, certainly is a psychological phenomenon to ponder. Yeah, clearly, clearly, yeah, yeah. So, how will people uh, find you? Like, if they want to go to, uh, they they want to uh, be in touch with you, or they want to, um, uh, they want to find out about this show in in uh, Chicago. Yes, What's the best absolutely. way to do that. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking that question, David. And um, so uh, two ways. One is you can go to my professional website, which is docbon.com, D-O-C-B-O-N-N.com. And there are links there to uh, to my, my, uh, my books. Um, there is also a link directly to the city winery where you can purchase tickets to the show there in Chicago on uh, April 11th. And if you prefer to go direct and purchase tickets to the show directly, then you can go to citywinery.com slash Chicago slash events. So citywinery, C-I-T-Y-W-I-N-E-R-Y.com slash Chicago slash events. And, um, uh, I also, I, uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, which is at docbond.com. 
and I'm on um, TikTok at realdocbond.com. So those are a number of ways you can can reach out and uh, get in touch. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So uh, be sure to uh, drop me a quick email so I can make sure that I've got them in my show notes too, because uh, I may not have caught it all. I wasn't taking any notes just now. Yeah. And uh, so the whole concept of serial killer is uh, actually, you would think, okay, well, we can easily define a serial killer. But one of the things you cover in the book is there's been some debate over the years as to, well, how do we decide who's a serial killer? Yes, yes. And, and that's why it's hard to get, or difficult to get hard and fast numbers. Um, and the same thing happens with mass murderers today. What exactly is a mass murder? Um, well, it's the same thing with serial killers. The, um, the, 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 the definition of a serial killer that I typically use um, for general discussion is an individual who has killed at least three people, could be more, um, where there is a, um, a distinction and a separation between each crime scene because serial killers typically kill people who are not in any way connected, don't know one another, and where there is what is known as an emotional cooling off period in between the murders. Most serial killers have come down from almost like a, a, an adrenaline high when they yeah. kill. And they, they, so they cool off emotionally. They go back into a life that Seem, usually seems pretty normal on the outside to the unsuspecting eye until that itch and that need to kill comes back and then they kill again. However, just to give you an idea of, you know, that not everyone agrees with this, the FBI some 15 years ago or so decided to lower the number of killings to two. You only, you only need to kill twice in separate crime scenes and events. And they eliminated the cooling off period in between. And they said, the reason for this is, and remember, they're not looking at this from necessarily a, um, a, a psychological standpoint. They're looking at it as a practical matter of um, apprehension and um, you know arrest that they said it, it really doesn't matter. Um, uh, once you've got two in separate crime scenes and events, the cooling off doesn't matter and we don't really need three. Um, uh, so, so for their purposes, they've actually widened the net, if you will, um, to, you know, to just, uh, to bring it to two. So were, were they not busy enough or what? This is going to keep them very busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Uh, but however, there is a lot of good news here. And in regards to the prolification uh, uh, um, uh, of uh, serial killers, and that is that the numbers are way down from the 1970s and 1980s. Um, there, we, I believe, based on the numbers of various sources, there were at least 650 serial killers on the loose in the United States in the 1970s. And that number escalated to more than 800 in the 1980s, which those decades were sort of the heyday, if you will, of serial killers. And then since the 1990s, the numbers have dropped precipitously. precipitously. Why would that be? Um, several fold. I mean, and I've spent a lot of time talking about this and I talk about it um, uh, quite a bit in my show. But 
Up until the 1970s, very little was known about serial killers. In fact, they weren't even called serial killers. They were called mass murderers. They were lumped together with the public shooters, you know, mass public shooters, school yeah. shooters today. And the psychology of the two, the psychology of a mass shooter versus the psychology of a serial killer is very, very different. Right. School shooters tend to be fatalistic individuals that want to go out in one blaze of glory. Serial killers have a hunger and they want to do it again and again and again. It's a different type of individual. So in the early 1970s in Quantico, Virginia, the FBI formed their behavioral science unit. The OG profilers like Hazelwood and others got together. They began to study in earnest. They used the term serial killer for the first time. And as I like to say, when you develop new tools and you're using those tools a lot, guess what? You tend to find a lot of what you're looking for. And so the 70s became the heyday of serial killers. That expanded even into the 1980s. But by the 1980s, we were getting much better at profiling, detecting, um, uh, and, and ultimately apprehending these individuals. And of course, then also along came DNA. And DNA was a big game changer. DNA has solved many a cold case. The, uh, the, the Golden State Killer that had been a cold case for decades was recently solved with familial ancestry DNA. Right. BTK was ultimately solved with uh, DNA. Um, and even, even uh, Brian Koberger, who's in the news, your, your, your audience may be familiar with him. He, he's been charged with killing four students um, in Idaho. It's one of the big uh, news stories, crime news stories of the last year. Um, I really believe that had he not been apprehended, and I do believe that he is most likely going to be found guilty uh, due to the DNA, that there's an excellent chance that he would have gone on to become a serial killer. I think he was simply caught a great likelihood that he was caught before he reached serial killer status. So I think we were catching these individuals earlier on. Um, so the good news is the numbers are way down. We're probably talking less than 50 serial killers this decade so, thus far, maybe a few dozen. So um, there are not a, as many of them out there, um, but they still exist. That hunger, I mean, the, the, the thing that causes a serial killer to be a serial killer is not going to go away, but... Hopefully we get just much better at detecting them and apprehending them before they do a lot of damage. Yeah, boy. Well, this has been so rich. I, uh, one thing that I didn't say at the beginning, was tempted to say, but decided not to, but now I'm going to say it, uh, is your book is encyclopedic. And, and the reason I hesitated to say that is that would make it sound, you know, very dry and boring, you know, that is, uh, but the, your coverage is so authoritative and so broad it was so, from so many angles that uh, it is encyclopedic in the best sense of the word without it being overly long. The book is what, around two or 300 pages? Uh, less than 300, yeah. Less than less, 300. Yeah, less than 300. So, um, so is there anything else that we need to get under the get the camel's nose under the tent here before we close <laughs> the circus down <laughs> well I, I appreciate that and I appreciate you um yeah, yeah I, I think that your um 
your interpretation or your assessment of, of my book is is um, is right on the money, and it's actually what I was going for. I was I was hoping to write a book that would be used in um, academic uh, circles, and it is. It's used in journalism courses, communication courses, criminology uh, courses at universities. But it's also I tried to read it, write it from a very user-friendly standpoint so that the average person who just has an interest in this topic um, would be able to um, enjoy it and digest it as well. And it seems to have, you know, it, it, it seems to have worked out pretty well because I do have a dual audience, um, uh, you know, in, in that regard. Um, so I appreciate that. And, um, uh, you know, I would just say that I think it's important I thought you know, my, so much of what I say is let's debunk the mysteries or the myths. Let's let's uh, let's let's tell the, the the truth out there. Let's not glorify these individuals. Let's not glamorize them. Right. But let's understand that they do somehow fit into the general pop psychology and pop culture. And I think it's important to you know to understand that because it also tells us more about ourselves. And that's really ultimately what I was hoping to do. And and what I do hope to do, and why I do this this show, why I take this show around the country. Well, I think I I wish you uh, uh, good good luck, good fortune in your uh, showbiz career now, and and in in your educational uh, uh, career, and uh, we'll have our eye on you. So, <laughs> so I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> Dr. Scott Bond, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. It's my, been my distinct pleasure, and I wish you all a, a blessed day. My recent guest, Dr. Scott Bond, turned out to be a most stimulating guest. Of course, I already knew he is the author of the 2024 book, Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murderers. But it wasn't until I dug into the book and did the interview that I realized how deep his expertise about serial killers is. As you know, back in 2001, I co-wrote a book about the infamous Zodiac serial killer. As a consequence of that book, I was contacted by a number of authors who had either also written about the Zodiac or other notorious killers, for example, the Unabomber. None of those other writers stand out to me with the same depth and breadth of knowledge as Dr. Scott Bond. As far as I'm concerned, he's in a class of his own. You will have heard me remark in the interview that his book is so comprehensive as to be encyclopedic in the best sense of the word. At the same time, it's so engagingly written as to be a real page-turner. And even more remarkably, it weighs in under 300 pages. And yet, we find out that it is sufficiently scholarly to be assigned as a text in a variety of university courses. Now, it's one thing to have written such a book, but beyond that, to be so fluent about the material as to be able to hold forth about it in an interview without reference to notes, color me impressed. To top it all off, Scott has had the 
creative audacity to turn it into an interactive theater piece. Genius. Clearly, I recommend the book, Why We Love Serial Killers, by Dr. Scott Bond, and if you can get to it, his theatric presentation as well. Hi guys, my name is Tony, I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and I just signed up to become a monthly donator to Shrink Rap Radio. And I did this because I love this podcast series. It gives me so much every single time I listen to these episodes. And I just wanted to give something back. I think it's important that when you find something that's that's pure of heart and um, honest in its intent and generous in its spirit, that you get behind and support it to ensure that it continues. And that's what I've done. And I encourage you all to do the same. Get on board, donate, put your hands in your pockets, stand up. It feels good. It's important. Thanks. Thanks, Tony, there in Melbourne, Australia, for becoming a monthly financial donor. And Tony, thank you for encouraging others to stand up and follow your fine example. Time once again to shrink wrap it up. Big thanks to today's guest, Dr. Scott Bond, for blowing us away with his enthusiasm and expertise on why we love serial killers. Next week, my guest will be Sean Giamatti, Ph.D., speaking about his extensive work in the gender-diverse community. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious Earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.